them. James chapter number three, James chapter number three. I'd like to use the slides, the PowerPoint, to help us this morning as there is a lot of terms and definitions, and I really don't want this to turn into a seminary class where you just list a bunch of terms on the left side and definitions on the right, and then you get a quiz at the end of the class period. I don't want to do that, but I do want us to understand the terminology of this passage, obviously given to us by the inspiration of God. God revealed divine truth, and these words, these terms were chosen by God for specific reasons. And in James chapter number 3, we're coming off of a passage in the beginning of this chapter that James deals with, by the inspiration of God, very authoritatively, with the untamable tongue. And we looked last week, James does not hold back. He compares the tongue to fire, poison, uh, an unbridled beast that can't be tamed, and there are some Strong words that James uses because he knows, God knows, how important our tongue is. And power and uh, the, the power of the death and life, excuse me, are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs reminds us. But James is continuing in this theme of being not just hearers of the word, but being doers. That the practice of our faith, the works of righteousness that we do are evidence of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as we progress in our sanctification, there should be more and more evidence of Christ's likeness, the fruit of the Spirit, the virtues of 2 Peter 1. And James isn't necessarily listing things quite like we see in 2 Peter 1, the different virtues or Galatians with the fruit of the Spirit. But he does get into some lists here in this paragraph. And he speaks of this fruit of righteousness. Once again, we see the evidence of our faith. We see the good works that come out of a saving faith in Jesus Christ, out of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Good works don't save us, but they are the evidence, they are the fruits of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we see in verse number 13, as we read a few moments ago, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? We could say it this way, who is wise? Who is understanding among you? This word wise, it's a common Greek word for knowledge, philosophy. But the Jewish language added to its meaning by applying the skillful practice, the use or the practical, the, 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 uh, applying the skillful or practic, practical use of knowledge as a means of practical living. So you have the word wise. We, we think of wisdom as knowledge rightly applied. We know people who have a lot of smarts, have a lot of intellect. They have a lot of brain power, but sometimes they lack common sense. They can't seem to be able to put that knowledge into practical daily living. We know that there are believers who have a lot of Bible knowledge, a lot of 
can I say Bible trivia? They know a lot of the facts of the Bible. But there's not wisdom in living out that knowledge in a holy, pure, and mature Christian life. So as he uses this word wise, as he asks this question, who? Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? He is saying, who is using this knowledge of the word of God? Who, yes, knows God and knows his word, but has allowed it to become, to be who they are internally, forming Christ-like character, integrity, that they then do, they live out in practical ways this truth, endued with knowledge. The only time this specific term is used in all the New Testament, though the root word is used in other places. Again, the simple term that we could also use to define this phrase is the word understanding. But it means a specialist or professional who could skillfully apply his expertise to practical situations. I've gotten to know some of you and some of your skills, and I've been impressed with some of your skills in various areas. And we can be very skilled in all kinds of different areas, vocationally or in our hobbies or whatever the the case may be. This word has to do with skill for living. This phrase has to do with skill for living. It's being used here. Yes, there's a professional sense. There's a specialist out there who could skillfully apply his expertise. Nowadays, we go to the doctor and it seems like every time we turn around, they're sending us to a specialist. We, we, we don't seem to be able to go to the doctor anymore without getting referred to some other ologist of some kind. It just seems like there's all these different specialties. And then you go to the specialist, and sometimes they refer you to another specialist. (laughs) I thought you were a specialist. But there's this special knowledge, this understanding, this expertise in practical situations that James is infusing with a, a spiritual meaning that we be able to live This is not in some sort of arrogant or pious way, but being able to live the Christian life with godly skill, with moral clarity, with spiritual maturity. We have skills for all kinds of things, but many times we are dumb when it comes to practical Christian living. We can be experts in all kinds of areas, But we are dumb as a box of rocks sometimes when it comes to basic moral choices. Have we not seen our society as it has pushed God and his word and the church and God's moral clarity and God's moral values as we have pushed him aside? We can't even, as a culture, determine what a man or a woman is. We're dumb. We're spiritually stupid. Murdering, massacring babies in the mother's womb by the millions. Can't even call out barbaric, inhumane, murderous activity by terrorist groups. Can't even call it evil. And come down on the side of righteousness 
in clear areas now. What is wrong with us? James is saying, of all people, the church, these 12 tribes scattered abroad, you need to have skill in righteous living, being doers of the word. He continues, and he says, but this skill, this being endued with knowledge, is to be done in a certain way. It's to be done with meekness. Let him show out of a good conversation. Conversation is more than just our verbal conversation, our texting conversations, our email, our digital conversations. Those count too, right? Sometimes we exempt. Well, I didn't say it, but I said it. (laughs) I said it. (laughs) I typed it. Just because there's a screen between us and that person doesn't exempt us from the principles of the right use of the tongue, the biblical use of the tongue, as James has already dealt with. He's talking about, in this word conversation, more than just our words that we speak. He's talking about our lifestyle, our manner of living. In this skill, in this expertise, we are to do so with meekness. Notice the word humility there in this definition. Strong, having convictions, having spiritual fortitude, but being able to do that with humility, without arrogance or self-promotion. I remember seeing a billboard years ago, and I don't remember who the soccer player was, but he had a big billboard, and I can't even remember what he was advertising, but it showed this soccer player, and he was mid-swing with his foot, And that ball was getting ready to be kicked. And there was a goal in the background. And it was advertising this particular product. And underneath, at the bottom of that billboard, it said, power under control. And it was talking about the skill of that soccer player to be able to take all of that power and to put that ball into the net with expertise, with skill. As a baseball fan, I like to think of a pitcher who can take that 100-mile-an-hour fastball and put it in that strike zone and then be able to do that with an 85-mile-an-hour off-speed or change-up or curveball. Fascinating. There's a lot of guys who can throw 90, 95, 100 miles an hour, but they can't get it into that strike zone, and their careers don't last if they even make it to the majors. Power under control having expertise, having the power of God, having spiritual fortitude, conviction, biblical convictions, but doing so with humility, with grace, not with pride, not with arrogance or self-promotion, but that seems to be the way you have to do it in our world today, isn't it? It's wrong. It's against what the Bible says. It's excused in our culture. Our culture yells and screams at us. You got to get your own. You got to fight for what's yours. You got to dominate. You got to climb on top of. It's a dog eat dog world. You got to step over people. You got to use and you got to take advantage so that you can get where you need to go, where you deserve to be. And that's totally contrary to what James is teaching here. Yes, strength, conviction but with meekness. And then he mentions in verse 14, the other way in which this skill is practiced 
this wisdom is lived out. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Bitter envying has to do with bitter jealousy. It has to do with undrinkable water. That word bitter is often used in the first century in the Greek language, in the Koine Greek. That word bitter would often refer to water that was undrinkable. I remember on mission trips, and some of you have been out of the country or you've been in places where there's been unfiltered water, impure water. I remember being in Kenya and we couldn't so much as even let, as we were washing dishes, we couldn't even so much as let some of that splatter up onto our, our mouth, onto our lips, because it could have various amoebas and bacteria. I got a really bad gastrointestinal sickness when I was in Kenya, and the missionaries, they said it, it could have been any number of things, but I, I often think it was something that I, I ate, but it hadn't been completely... Uh, cleaned or boiled or maybe I just had some water. I mean, even taking a shower, you were supposed to not let the water get in your face. Um, I lost a contact the other day because I was, I mean, I've showered with contacts in for years. Josiah just got contacts and we're like, oh, you can shower with your contacts. And I had lost a contact in the shower for years. I came out of the shower the other day, all of a sudden my eye was blurry. And I couldn't find the contact for hours and I looked down on the bathroom floor uh, several hours later, and there it was, all folded up and dried out, and uh, I felt so stupid because I had showered with my contacts in, and I, I lost it. But we had told him, as long as you don't get the water right in your eyes, you should be able to shower with your contacts in. But we couldn't even shower and get the water on our face, get in your nose, get in your mouth. Somehow you would get it into your body, and you would get sick. Undrinkable water, bitter water. He's saying here that bitter envying is like bitter jealousy. It's a harsh, resentful attitude toward others. This should have no place in the Christian life. I know this is so commonly practiced in our culture. I know that this is what society says is, oh, well, there are certain groups of people. They deserve this kind of treatment. And there's all of this grouping up in our culture. And sometimes the ones who cry the most about equality are the ones that are the worst when it comes to discriminatory types of activities, resentment, harsh treatment. You know, the whole love is love, stick the yard sign in the, in the yard, be kind. But those same people are using all kinds of vulgarity and using all kinds of unspeakable types of words and terminology in vicious kinds of angry protests and accusations against those who simply believe in God's biblical morality. But this, as a believer, should have no place in our lives, this kind of bitter jealousy, envying, harsh, resentful attitude toward others. And then he mentions strife. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts... Glory not and lie not against the truth. Strife is selfish ambition, self-seeking words and actions that antagonize and cause division. In the first century, this Greek word, or the Greek word from which we translate the word strife, was used of a politician. 
who forced his agenda at almost any cost, including mistreating and dominating people if necessary. He's saying this has no place in the believer's life. The wise man, and endued with knowledge among you, lives out with a good lifestyle, a good conversation, his words with humility, wisdom, expertise, skillful living, but lives out his or her Christian life with a moral integrity, with a meekness, a humility, a strength from God that's under control, that's not proud, that's not arrogant, that's not full of bitter jealousy and resentment, that's not full of selfish ambition and self-seeking, selfish, striving, or causing strife by their life. Clear distinction, clear contrast we see in our culture that the, one, the way to live, the way to get it all, the real skill of living, and you can find all the different kinds of self-help books and 10 steps to this and 12 steps to that and 40 steps to success and five pillars of whatever. But oftentimes they leave out James 13 and 14, James 3, 13 and 14. And these basic principles Who's the truly wise man? Who's the truly wise and understanding, skillful person? The one who lives out the wisdom of the word of God with a good conversation, with meekness of wisdom. So then we come down to verse 15. And we see, first of all, the characteristics of man's wisdom. We're going to see this contrast continue. Verses 13 and 14 as sort of an introduction. And then verses 15 through 18, we're going to look at characteristics of man's wisdom versus the characteristics of biblical wisdom. And then we'll go into, as we have time, as the Lord would allow, then we will also go into the capital, the capital of biblical wisdom versus the consequences of man's wisdom. But we see the characteristics of man's wisdom. Verse 15, this wisdom, speaking of the bitter envying and the strife in your hearts, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. This wisdom that is of the world, that is of man's ideas, of man's mind, of man's thoughts, this earthly wisdom is limited to the temporal to what works for the here and now, what's pragmatic, what makes life work for me right now in this given moment to make me successful. It's sensual. has to do with the natural as opposed to the supernatural. It's the word from which we get psyche or psycho that also we use to form words like psychology or psychosis. And he describes that this wisdom is also devilish, demonic. Obviously, its source would be Satan himself. This is some strong language James is using. This wisdom of man is earthly. It's limited to the temporal. It's sensual. It's focused on man's personal pleasures, what man can get to be successful that works for him, for the here and now, 
that's not looking to the eternal has to do with what is natural, which then speaks even to some of this climate change and radical environmentalism. I'm not saying that we can't reduce and reuse and recycle. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be good stewards of God's creation. But you hear people talk like climate change is the existential crisis that is coming, that's going to destroy the world. Can I just say it's worshiping the creation instead of the creator in much of it? It's often just earthly, sensual. It's really, when you think about it and you get down into it and you research it a little further, it's really about power, money, and control by certain elites. But there's more than just that. That's just one area. You know, people have the bumper sticker, nature is my church. Have you seen that one? I just go out and I just breathe in the fresh air and I see and I feel one with the Spirit. I mean, nonsense. It's that kind of earthly, sensual, what's in it for me? What works for me? What makes me feel good? And then he goes and he says, downright demonic, devilish. There's more and more dabbling in this new age spiritism. There's more and more people getting involved in some of this occultic type of activity. Dark web, much of pornography, the hardcore pornography often is wrapped up in this occultic, demonic type of activity. Scary stuff. There are principalities, there are powers, there are spiritual, there's spiritual wickedness in heavenly places that God wants us to have no part of. But it's real. I remember using this passage Earthly, sensual, devilish. I remember using this passage many times with young people who were fighting selfishly, just going at it. Sometimes I'd have whole groups of students and I'd pull out James 3 and I'd read them, these verses. And I would say, not that they were involved in demonic activity, not that they were doing animal sacrifices over pentagrams in the classroom. That's not my point. But I would say your, your, your selfishness, your, your bitter jealousy, your envying and your strife, your divisions, your, 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 your fighting amongst one another and rebelling against the teacher, it comes right out of the heart of man that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. You're all about yourself and what you can get. And you have no regard for anyone else. And sometimes their faces would, their eyes would get real big, their jaws would drop. But I felt like there were times that I only had but the word of God to help them to see that what they were doing was sin. And we have to rise above that. We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 if you want to put a bookmark here and just turn back several pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We don't have time to read all through the, these chapters, this latter half of 1 Corinthians 1 and into chapter 2, we'll only be able to touch on certain words and phrases. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 
And then Paul continues, and he deals with this because the Corinthians were wrapped up in this worldly wisdom. We're going to separate earthly and worldly and human wisdom just for today's purposes, though we're going to put them all in really in one big category. We're going to separate them a little bit to help us see some nuances, to kind of turn the prism, so to speak, and see these perspectives of human wisdom, earthly wisdom, man's wisdom, worldly wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1, what is worldly wisdom? As we, if we had time to read verses 17 through 31, we would see that the world calls the preaching of the cross foolishness. So I'm a fool to the world. What I'm doing, what I spend my life doing, my career, if I can call it that, my vocational ministry, it is foolish to the world. What you are doing, sitting and listening to me, the world says is foolish. That we are fools for coming on a Sunday morning and getting up early and giving of our time. That's really God's time. And really, we have just spent, if you think about it, right? If we really think about it, we have just spent six days pretty much doing what we want to do for ourselves. Not that God hasn't blessed us with jobs and recreation and holidays and vacations, but really, if you think about it, six days are pretty much spent getting what we can get. And God says, just give me one day. And we, we agonize over that, right? Worldly wisdom says what we're doing is foolish. Do you believe in a God who expects you to serve at a church and to sing and to give up your one morning of the week that you can sleep in and to come and listen to some bald-headed preacher? Really? From a 2,000-year-old book? That's what the world says. That's what worldly wisdom says. It comes from the world system. It's generated by cultural expectations. Boy, what does the culture do? It changes trends, and it just seems to get worse. The world system, worldly wisdom, comes from the world system generated by cultural expectations that leave God out, or, more subtly, remakes him in man's image, or, even more subtly, minimizes him in a man-centered value system. Sometimes worldly wisdom does, doesn't necessarily leave God out completely, but just kind of remakes God in my image, in man's image. How I think God should be, what I think God should do, and how he should act, and how he should treat me and bless me and do things for me. We remake God in man's image, or we just simply minimize him. The world's wisdom sometimes just minimizes God. And remakes God and recenters man, makes man the center. And man comes up with his own value system that minimizes God or devalues what God values. Worldly wisdom doesn't think really beyond the lust of the flesh, that lustful desire for pleasure, the lust of the eyes, that lustful desire for possessions to have, to keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians or whatever our dream and goals and visions are for how we can be successful and what we can get and our net worth and on and on it goes. 
Worldly wisdom doesn't think much beyond the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That thirst for power, for pride, for preeminence. Worldly wisdom, earthly wisdom, and then human wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. He continues in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Where does human wisdom originate? Not from God. It emanates from man's own sinful nature. It emphasizes man as the source of his own achievements, solver of all his problems, and creator of his own destiny. And so now we hear things like expressive individualism. And we ought to just let our children express themselves because as they express themselves, they are going to dive deep inside their hearts and find that spark of goodness. And if we just fan that flame of the spark of goodness, it will blow up into a fiery fire that will engulf the world with goodness and peace and prosperity and happiness. That's what the world says. We're good inside. We're, we're really deep down. You just got to find it. You got to be your authentic self. You got to open your mind. You got to think more about all what's going on. You got to become one with and all these other terms and phrases and just be happy and live and let live and on and on it goes. You define your own truth. You have your truth and I have mine. And if we just search and we just find that authentic self, then we will have true happiness. And we can all hold hands and sing kumbaya together in that future utopia of peace and prosperity, right? But no, as we go deeper into the heart of man, what do we find? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The sewage of man's heart is coming out, isn't it? We're not to follow our hearts. No, we're to direct our hearts, submit our hearts by the truth of God's word, to the truth of God's word, to God and to his glory, and to his will and his lordship, as we know him as our savior. But human wisdom changes all that, looks within man to be the source of his own achievements, the solver of his problems, and the creator of his own destiny. And while God made man to create, to invent, to analyze, to develop, to build, and solve, we're made in the image of God. God gave us great intellect. God gave us great ability. As made in the image of God, we have incredible abilities, resources, and talents. And while God made man to create, invent, analyze, develop, build, and solve, he was never made to do so independently of God. He is to always submit. We are always to submit our creativity, our imagination, our abilities, and everything else that he has blessed us with. We're to submit all of those to God. 
as our creator, as our sovereign master and Lord. Human wisdom doesn't do that. What's the result? Modernism, postmodernism, critical theory, intersectionality, Marxism, expressive individualism. What has that done? It leaves man purposeless, hopeless, unsatisfied, and unsaved. Smart, maybe. Intellectual, maybe. But still a sinner in need of God's saving grace. Just, just, because man, just because man can invent a technology, it doesn't mean that he should. Nor does it answer the questions, how do we use this technology? Why do we have it? What is it for? Okay, can I use a simple illustration? I have a droid. I know this is not as good as an apple. I know. I like my droid. But you realize, we realize, right? We realize that those big tech companies, they have an agenda. I realize the parts of that phone are all moral, neutral. But believe me, Samsung has a desire to do something with that phone. First of all, take my money. Secondly, get me hooked up with a internet, I mean a cell phone service to take more of my money. And then comes along Amazon and all the other places you can buy stuff to take even more of my money. What does the phone, is, is the phone a tool? Sure. Is it useful? Can it be used for good? Sure. But even the raw technology as Samsung or Apple or whoever, Google, whoever makes the device, they have an agenda. They want something to be done with that phone. They don't tell us how we should use the phone, why we should use it, what it's for. They don't answer those questions. We get those questions answered by the word of God. If that phone is a big distraction, as some school districts are now discovering, oh, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to have the phone in the classroom. What little bit of learning the kids were getting is now gone because, you know, they just bought a year's worth of groceries on their mom and dad's credit card from their account, whatever. We put those devices into the classroom. I struggled with that for years. We were one of the last schools to put computers, technology in the classroom. We never allowed phones in the classroom. But I was this archaic, old school, ancient school principal because really, if you put a computer in the hands of a kid in the classroom, they are going to just turn the world upside down with their smartness, right? That's what we were told, as we were sold, get a smartphone. Boy, is it a struggle. Put a phone in the kid's hands. Who tells them how to use it, what it's useful for? What do you do with it? Why? How much? Now we have attention spans clocking in at eight and a quarter seconds, less than a goldfish, was it not, which is at nine. Have we heard of biomedical technology, gene editing? Man now thinks he can be the little creator and he can edit genes. Oh, but by the way, it's only for cancer research and to solve diseases. Really? You heard of CRISPR technology? And some of the excesses, man has the ability to edit genes. God's given man enough 
access and resources and knowledge to now be able to get into the DNA and RNA. Do I even want to talk about COVID shots? I don't even want to go there, right? But just because man can doesn't man, mean man should, nor how to use it, what to do with it. God is the one who answers those questions. Human wisdom, earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom falls short because it emanates ultimately from man's sinful, selfish, deceptive, destructive hearts. And so whenever I would, and I still do it, I feel like sometimes my head is on a swivel because there's so many things that are out there. So many errors, so many false teachings, so many subtle, often just seems to be okay on the surface. So many things that I feel like as a pastor I have to be aware of. As a school principal, I would often do this as well. And when I would get pressure about choosing curriculum, when I'm talking about who teaches or who preaches in the church and different trends that are out there, I want to be biblical. And there's constantly an assault, it seems like, from every which direction. But one of the things that I would look at when it came to curriculum is I put in front, as I would order to put in front of the kids at school, I would look and I would say, what is the worldview? Are the students going to be reading things that are going to attack their biblical worldview that we are trying to teach? And so I would have people who would come to me and they would say, oh, wow, you use a Christian curriculum in your school. Well, yeah. <laughs> You use the Bible in your church. You, you preach from the Bible. Yes, I don't preach from the Star Tribune or Indianapolis Star or Journal Courier. Or, no, I preach from the Bible, God's holy word. I, I would hear people come and they would say, oh, I was at a conference and we were at a, a, a booth and they were advertising their particular curriculum and they thought, wow, it's so interesting that your school as a Christian school, actually uses Christian textbooks. This is not an attack on public education. This is not my, that's not my point. Or if you work in a, in a public school, or if you um, are a student in a public school, this is not an attack on any of that. I'm just saying as a Christian school, as a Christian school principal, as a pastor now of a, of a church, I want to be biblical. And so there would be times where there would be teachers, or there would be people who would walk up to a booth, at a, and they would tell me this. They would say, you're a Christian school and you use Christian curriculum? Oh, I wish that our Christian school would use Christian curriculum. Oh, it'd be nice to be able to quit saying, don't believe what's in your textbook, just believe what the teacher puts on the board. And I thought, how in the world? I, I, couldn't, I don't know how I could do that as a principal. How could I, as a pastor, ignore the word of God, run around and show off and motivate you to do all kinds of things, but never give you the glories of God's truth? Shame on me. I'm doing nothing more than, than just giving you worldly wisdom, earthly wisdom, human wisdom. James says, as, we've, as we're going back to James chapter 3, he says the wisdom that is this bitter envying and jealousy, strife, it descendeth not from above, its source is of the earth, temporal, sensual, all about man's selfish pleasures. And desires, and it is downright devilish. Its source can even be 
ultimately trace back to Satan himself and his rebellion against God, who said, I will be God. And said to Eve, ye shall be as gods. Hath God said? And ultimately, that's what human, earthly, and worldly wisdom does. It questions God and his authority. And it puts man on the throne and makes man preeminent. Got to watch out for this kind of wisdom. Next week, with the Lord's help, we'll come back and we'll look at, in the next set of verses, and even back in verses 13 through 15, 13 and 14, I should say, we'll look at the characteristics of biblical wisdom. The characteristics of biblical wisdom. But we're out of time today to go any further, so we'll have to split this up. We'll have to split the, the meatloaf. Hopefully it's good meatloaf, and we'll split it up into sections. Maybe you're still eating your turkey and your ham from Thursday. I hope this will be better than the turkey and the ham that's left over in your refrigerator or your freezer. But I want to come back, Lord willing, and I want to look at next week, with the Lord's help, the characteristics of biblical wisdom that contrasts with this earthly, sensual Worldly, temporary, temporal wisdom. The world's wisdom. And see what the Bible says about what true biblical wisdom, God's wisdom, is really like. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, this passage is rich and deep. Also very practical and convicting. Lord, there are truths, principles here that we must apply that, Lord, we might be skillful Christians, not in pride, not for self, but, Lord, in humility, submitted to you, that we might live out the wisdom of God, the biblical wisdom, with meekness, with the fear of God, that, Lord, we might impact a world that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ so desperately, that we might be able to impact this lost and dying world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to continue to stand for the truth of the word of God, but to do so with humility, with meekness. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.